Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. If you haven't joined this podcast before, let me tell you just a little bit about what Data Unchained is all about. The paradigm for data access has changed over the last several years with the advent of the cloud, the move to a large remote workforce, applications everywhere, data generated everywhere. The paradigm for data access has completely changed versus the original data center days. In today's decentralized world, getting data to these remote workers, these applications, and across even different cloud regions is really a challenge. Data Unchained digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions that are making data an asset as a global resource. And today we're looking into how the investment community is looking at solutions around these decentralized data solutions. Today's guest is Jonathan Tower. Jonathan is the Managing Director of U.S. Operations of Prosperity 7. Um, Jonathan, thank you for joining the show. Great to be here with you, Molly. Jonathan, where are you joining us from? Are you out in the Bay Area today? I am. So we're based in Palo Alto, California. And can you tell us, for those of us maybe who are not familiar with you as a person first, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came about being in this position at Prosperity 7. Yeah, I started my um, entrepreneurial career when I was still in college. I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley and, um, you know, putting myself through school, I had to be resourceful and I, I began a business out of my dorm room and it mushroomed into a pretty successful startup and it was a very formative experience. And really, from that point forward, I've always worked uh, with emerging growth companies, either as a founder or an operator or now as an investor. So I've been in venture capital for almost 20 years now. And, um, you know, as I, as I said, sort of began my career primarily as an entrepreneur. I find it interesting. It seems like the dorm room entrepreneurs are not easy to find, but most of them are quite successful if they're able to pull it off that early in their, you know, evolving careers. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it reminds me of Jeff Bezos and his garage, you know, selling books out of his garage. I think that Michael was Dell as well. As well. Michael, Michael Dell, Dell yeah. and others, mm-hmm. many others. Uh, you know, there's something about, um, and again, I was something of an accidental entrepreneur. I didn't really start out with that goal in mind. But I think when you are, you know, uh, young in your career, uh, and as any entrepreneur will tell you, you have to wear a lot of hats when you're starting a company. You don't probably have a team yet. And I think what's great about that experience is you learn very quickly where your natural gifts lie and where you need to work on things. And so I got that experience, you know, front and center pretty pretty early on and realized, you know, I had certain areas that I think I could navigate pretty well, other areas that I was absolutely unprepared, but it also created a definiteness of purpose in me that once I ran the business, ended up selling the business and going back to finish up my years at Berkeley, uh, I really had a purpose in mind in terms of what I wanted to accomplish in my academic career. And that led to business school and it led to other things. And so I, I do I do consider that first startup experience at whatever I was, 19 years old, as extremely formative in, in many of the career choices that I've made in my life. That makes sense. So before we talk a little bit about the VC landscape and what's going on kind of in the macroeconomic conditions, would you tell us about Prosperity 7? It's, I think, familiar to a lot of folks who maybe look at the global markets, maybe less so in the U.S., I'm not sure, but tell us about Prosperity 7. Yeah, so we are a fairly new platform. We've been active since 2019. We are investing out of our 
first fund. It's a billion-dollar fund, which I think is pretty significant for a first fund. Um, we are a global fund. Uh, we have a team in China based in Beijing with operations in Shanghai, and we have a team here in the U.S. Uh, based in Palo Alto with an office in New York. Um, I lead the U.S. effort at this time. Uh, and so the China team got started a bit earlier than the U.S. team did, so they began deploying capital in 2019, 2020. The U.S. team has been catching up. Um, we are um, we started off life as primarily a diversification fund, so really looking for truly disruptive innovations and technology investments, which could be creating um, category-leading companies in the future. Um, and the three tenets of what we look for in our in our investments are technologies that are disruptive, scalable, and resilient. Uh, opportunities that really have the potential for global reach and global scale, and at the end of the day are solving fundamental human and business challenges. So it's another way of saying we're not really backing what we consider more trivial investments. We're looking for truly breakthrough opportunities um, that may take a long time to get to commercialization and monetization. So these could be very new industries uh, like a space tech or food tech or synthetic biology uh, that may take many years to get to a level of scale, but are massive enough opportunities that, that we are willing to lean in on those and, and have the long-term orientation that one needs to be successful. So getting started in 2019, right when COVID was really upon us, was that a challenge? I think about launching a new fund and it is you know, a pretty sizable one. Yeah. Was it challenge uh, launching it, or was it more difficult figuring out which companies were going to endure and have longevity? I don't think the launch was that challenging. Um, I think everybody experienced challenges once COVID was upon us, and we very quickly had to become uh, pretty adept at uh, virtual meetings, doing things virtually that in the past we had done in person. Um, but if you look at the history of the venture community, uh, I think it, it got in lockstep pretty quickly. Right. There was that moment, maybe three or four months in early 2020, when we were all kind of sitting on our hands, figuring out what does this mean? What is this going to do for our for our worldview and our careers and our ability to invest? But I'd say the venture community, you know, pretty quickly got in lockstep with with how to be successful. And, and the venture market took off on a tear really between 2020 and I'd say the latter part of 2021, early 2022, when we had what we are now in a bit of a, a tech correction. Uh, so it was challenging to some degree, and we certainly had to work around, um, you know, the issues of not being uh, in the same physical location. But again, because we're already pretty adept at investing globally, uh, using these tools, we're on a we're on a, a type of virtual conference application right now. Uh, this has become sort of the, the the table ante or table stakes for for any investing going on, and we're seeing many many more companies now that present to us that are distributed day one, right? They are already, uh, you know, they, they have, may have a small office in San Francisco, but they've got a development team in Kansas City. They've got another team in uh, somewhere in Central Asia. They're, you know, they are already thinking globally. And so we as a platform realize that as venture investors, we also have to think globally day one and be able to invest uh, in this new paradigm that I think COVID has brought upon us. That makes sense. I think it'd be interesting to know how you as a as a VC look at the current economic conditions. What types of companies? I know you talked about breakthrough technology, but is are you looking at early stage companies, late stage? Is there anything else in the types of companies you're looking for 
right now in this economy? We primarily focus on early stage companies. And when I say early stage, I'm referring primarily to Series A, Series B. Um, We are not doing seed investments at this time. We may in the future make that part of our platform. But right now, given given the capital that we're investing, it's a billion-dollar fund, it's difficult for us to... To, to get into deals where you're investing 100k or 500k, you know we, we have a lot of capital to put to work. Um, so Series A and Series B is our sweet spot. We will do later stage investments, but I do think that as you get to Series C, Series D, you're generally talking about multi-billion dollar companies at that point in terms of the valuation. And you know, for us to write a meaningful check and to have meaningful ownership, you know, we like to be a little bit earlier than that. Um, and so I would say, you know, 80 plus percent of our investments are probably at the Series A and Series B. Okay. And as you, I'm certain, know, and you probably get calls all the time, the landscape as a tech company raising money is frustrating and difficult right now. If you were talking to folks who are out fundraising right now, um, do you have any tips or guidance on the best ways to approach the VCs or how yeah. they can really present them best right now? Yeah, look, it's a challenging time to raise capital for all but the best companies out there and the sectors that are most in vogue, right? So we're going through a little bit or maybe more than a little bit of a correction. We've been going through it for the better part of 18 months. I happen to take the view that this is a healthy cycle. Every market has one. We've had a 10-plus year bull cycle in tech and in venture capital going back to the sort of the, the last days of the global financial crisis in 2009 and 2010, really the tech market began to take off again. It really didn't stop until 18 months ago. So these are natural cycles in any, in any bull market. You have a, a period where the market needs to, for lack of a better term, digest what it's already consumed, right? Kind of take a breath, you know, reset its expectations, reset valuations, kind of get back to basics, there's always a little bit of a flight to quality. And we're seeing that now. I think if you look back at the last, let's call it five years, there was a lot of new money that came into venture from every angle. It could be you know, investors that were in different asset classes that decided to come into venture because they perceived the returns were better in venture. And so you saw some of those investors that were not traditional VC investors suddenly hanging out a shingle and being VC investors. You saw non-traditional people who are now LPs in venture funds who wanted to be in venture. And because they can't get into the very best brands, because it's very difficult to get into a top-tier brand as an LP, maybe they backed lots of new managers whose strategy and track record weren't as solid as other brands. And so there were tons of new funds formed, lots of new emerging managers formed, I would say in the hundreds in the last five or six years. And so as any market, when you have a glut of new capital, a glut of new investors, a lot of that money went into areas that one looked back with hindsight and say, maybe that wasn't the greatest investment. Maybe that ended up spinning up 30 or 40 competitors when five could have been sufficient for that market, right? And so now you have 20 or 30 companies, startups going after the same market opportunity. They're not all going to survive. Uh, and there's going to be a natural winnowing process as those companies either run out of money or get acquired or combine in some other configuration to be successful or to just to survive. And that takes time, right? If we didn't get to this place overnight, we're not going to get out of this place overnight. So this is a natural 
uh, uh, I think, healthy process for any economy, any marketplace to go through. Um, but getting back to your, your primary point here, Molly, your question, I should say, you know, our focus and, and my response and, and advice to a startup founder is be very focused on the problem that you're solving. Hopefully, it's a significant problem that has global reach and global scale. Uh, it is something that is difficult to solve and that you have a technology solution behind how you're going to solve it. So there's built-in differentiation and um, defensibility around that. And that you, your team is uniquely qualified to, to solve this problem. Uh, and this is across any category, right? I'm not going to go in and say, here's how I would present a consumer internet company versus a, a blockchain company. I think there are certain commonalities for startup founders, regardless of what opportunity you're going after, that I think you should always think about in how you present to investors and what is the value proposition of what you're doing that's going to compel an investor to want to work with you and invest in your company. That makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. When you think about these sticky categories where there's a lot of smaller companies, startups coming and there will be consolidation in the future. Um, which areas do you see that most in tech right now? I mean, of course, AI jumps to mind because you can't pick up anything without hearing about AI. But what are some of the others? Well, look, AI is having a moment right now. Um, that It's hard to dispute that. And uh, it is certainly a sector that is in vogue. Um, but there will come a point when a lot of capital will have already been deployed into AI startups, and there'll be a natural pause, a natural pause because many of the investors by that point in time will say, okay, we've got five, six, seven, eight investments in AI. Let's see how they fare before we deploy more capital into the sector, right? Sure, That's going to sure. be a natural thing. And you've seen this across every cycle, every um, you know moment in time where a subsector was in vogue, whether it was AR, VR, whether it was blockchain or crypto, there's always been that period where a lot of investors will rush in because they feel like they have to have a play in that space. They'll make a few investments and then they'll hit the pause button and say, let's, let's see how they do before we put more capital into the sector and we still have a lot to learn. So you'll see that happen in AI for sure. I think right now, though, it's, a, it's obviously a very robust area of investment. Many, many companies are getting funded and we'll see how that plays out. I would I would turn your question a little bit more towards, let's say, sectors that are a little bit out of vogue in this moment in time. And I think you you can throw a lot of things. Crypto, obviously, is under, under challenge right now. And so I think crypto startups, you're seeing those companies consolidate. Many of them are going out of business or they're getting acquired away. Um, you know, I think companies that will touch on the creator economy, which was very popular four or five years ago, maybe not as popular now in terms of being in vogue in the moment. And that's not to disparage any one company or any one sector for that matter. I think there are all some great companies coming out of these these sectors. But just as a broad theme, maybe not as popular as it was three or four years ago. And so you're seeing a lot of that area kind of slow down, consolidate some of those companies going away. But ultimately, it makes the surviving companies in those sectors stronger and healthier because like any Darwinistic situation, you're taking advantage of that opportunity where you can acquire uh, assets on the cheap. You can hire people for less of what it would cost you a year or two ago when the market was a lot frothier, right? So really good startup entrepreneurs and operators are able to take advantage of these markets and say, yes, it looks like times are tough. Yes, it looks like 
you know, the sky is falling, but this is also the best time to step on the gas and build a great company and take advantage of these market dislocations to acquire assets on the cheap, to hire great engineers, hire great talent, get cheap office space, where two years ago office space was extremely expensive in a market like San Francisco. And so the great entrepreneurs see these crises as opportunities, step on the gas, and when the market comes back, they are in tremendous, um, tremendously powerful positions in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I'd like to have you talk just a little bit about the recent investment that you made in Hammerspace. That is a nice segue into one of those entrepreneurs who I think fits that mold very well um, with David Flynn and his company. Tell me a little bit and tell our audience a little bit about maybe how you came across Hammerspace and when you ultimately ended up leading the Series A round for Hammerspace, what were the aspects of that company that made you lean in on it? Yeah, there are a lot of dimensions. So I've known David for the better part of 10 years when he was at Fusion IO. I wasn't there for the public, the IPO, unfortunately. <laughs> I think my, <laughs> my firm at the time would have liked to have been there. Uh, but I did know David. I was close to a couple of, of, of friends of mine who worked at Fusion. So I was I was in the ecosystem, for lack of a better term. Um, and obviously, you know, Fusion IO, great company, one of the pioneers in flash storage back in the day. Um, and, you know, not to disparage anybody or anything, I think Fusion IO, like a lot of companies that go public, um, got to a place where maybe the innovations were not as, um, as active. No, we're not as actively innovating once they went public. And this is a very common story with companies that have a, a, a public uh, offering. Uh, and I think there's natural reasons for why that happens. A lot of it is just, you know, as you get to a level of success, there's a lot of internal pressure to keep doing what works, right? Just keep kind of cranking out what's always worked, what's what's throwing off lots of cash. That's what investors want. And so that desire, that scrappy startup kind of culture of let's just kind of you know, move fast and break things and reinvent the wheel, I think it becomes more challenging as you become a larger, bigger organization. Now, some of this is is fairly obvious because as you get larger, by nature, you're going to move a little more slowly. You're going to become a little bit more risk averse. Uh, And then, of course, once you are a public company and you sit on Wall Street, now you have Wall Street investors that you have to you have to appeal to. uh, And they're looking for that double digit growth year after year after year. Right. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that any new industry is not going to give you, let's just use an example. Let's say you're a $10 billion market cap company in Wall Street, and Wall Street wants 20% year-over-year growth. How are you going to create a billion-dollar business every year to kind of meet that metric? You're not going to overnight, right? There are no new industries that out of the gate are, ten, are a billion-dollar business that you're going to create. And so it's very difficult for a publicly traded company that needs to hit that metric to make Wall Street happy to do that internally, right? That's why most of those companies end up being massive acquirers. And so I think Fusion kind of fell into the camp where they weren't innovating as much. And I think David, being the visionary founder that he is and that he was, um, I think Fusion.io was really the first chapter in his vision of where data was going and where storage was going. And I think he was able to implement that first chapter at Fusion, but he had another chapter in his back pocket, you know, mentally that he wanted to implement. And I think like a lot of founders realized that once his first company was massively successful, the ability to continue to innovate as he had when Fusion was a much smaller company was really, the environment just wasn't as 
as, as ready for it. And so he realized in order for him to enact his next chapter in, in the vision of where he felt data and storage was going, he needed to build another company to do that. And so after some fits and starts, that company ended up being Hammerspace. And as I got reconnected with David some years later, um, you know, a lot of the same things that he told me about in 2011, 2012, he was still very passionate about. And, um, you know, one of the things that I look at when I'm especially sitting down with a, a second time or third time founder or whatever that is, but somebody has been very successful. The question the VC asks him herself or herself is, does that founder still have the fire in the belly, right? Yeah. Are they willing to burn the to midnight oil, <laughs> do what's involved to build a great company again? Because quite frankly, it's a very different value proposition when you are financially comfortable, Right. Um, and, and because again, that sense is, do I really want to put in the 80 hour weeks and, you know, neglect my family and put off my hobbies to just do this and have that drive and put up with the rejection and, and, and the stress of doing a startup, knowing the odds are still against you in this business when I can just go and, you know, tend to my, my vineyard and my race cars and my house in Napa. There's a sense of, you know, do I really have that fire in the belly? And so one of the first, you know, one of the first things I wanted to assess was, was, was David ready to do this again? And I was very encouraged after a very long lunch that we had. And I looked in the whites of his eyes and I realized he's really passionate about this. This is Mm -hmm. something he really wants to do. And once I realized, and I, and I got familiar again with the problem that he wanted to solve through Hammerspace, um, I got very evangelical about it. And, you know, his vision, and, and I don't want to, you know, steal his thunder because he's, he's a much better uh, uh, argue, you know, uh, proponent of his technology and strategy than I can ever be, was the idea that the promise of cloud was never really delivered in the way that we were kind of led to believe 20 plus years ago when cloud really came on the scene, right? This idea of data available anywhere, you know, vendor neutral, platform neutral, agnostic, geographically neutral, um, that was never really provided because, you know, and, and it's nobody's fault. It just, the way infrastructure was built, it was purpose built for the moment. And like any other technology, it gets, you, you, you outlive that pretty quickly. It becomes obsolete pretty quickly. And the data needs today are fundamentally different than they were even five years ago, which was fundamentally different from what they were 15 years ago. And we can go back from there. And so how we use the data today is, you know, puts a stress on infrastructure that was built, you know, 15, 20 years ago, quite frankly, and we're, we're at a point where now that is a massive bottleneck and a massive choke point for accessing data, uh, manipulating data, sharing data, collaborating on files. All that is being basically hamstrung because the infrastructure has not kept pace with how we're using data. And he has built a company to really solve that at the file level. Um, and of course, because it's David Flynn and he is you know, the, one of the real godfathers of data and, and file storage going back to the Fusion I.O. days, he's been able to build an incredible team around him of people that really want to work with David. I mean, that was one thing that struck me about him was when he left Fusion and he went to do other things, people would follow him because they want to work with David Flynn. There aren't that many people in tech and certainly not in that area, that arcane area of tech in file data storage that have that type of leadership and that type of gravitational pull for engineers. And he does. 
And that's a unique proposition in, in my business. And so he was able to build a tremendous team around him that were also incredibly passionate about solving this problem. And getting back to what I said at the beginning of this conversation, Molly, we as P7 look for those companies that are truly disruptive and that have that global reach and global scale. And the problem that Hammerspace is solving is so universal. It has such impact across so many verticals and so many massive industries that if they're able to solve it and they are solving it, it's clear now, um, it's going to be a massive company. And that's why we got excited. That's very cool. So as we're starting to wrap this up, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions as audience members who are listening and a lot of the folks who listen to the show probably are fundraising and in these kinds of positions right now. If they're interested in reaching out to you or P7 more generally, what's mm-hmm. the best way to get in contact with the company? Yeah, I mean, obviously you can go to our website, which is fine, but you know, feel free to email me if you like. It's jonathan.tower at p7vc.com. It's papa7victorcharlie.com. Um, you know, again, uh, send, send, reach out to me. We have a full team here in Palo Alto with all sorts of different disciplines. And, you know, if it's an opportunity that is right for us, you know, we'll certainly get in touch and find a way to start a dialogue with you. So we try to be very uh, available and accessible. Um, we believe that's a very important part of us as we build our brand. Like I mentioned, Molly, we're a fairly new brand in the Valley. I think we're making some great investments, Hammerspace being one of them, uh, and several others that were just announced recently. And so I think as, as the months go on, we'll be better and better known. Uh, but part of our, 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 our culture here is a very open, accessible culture where we want to be interacting with the community uh, as much as possible. And part of that is, is really having an open dialogue with, with startup founders that are trying to build great things and do great things. Very cool. Jonathan, thank you for joining the show today. Um, your insights are unique um, for this audience, given kind of the perspective that you have that you get here from a lot of companies. You have a lot of experience in tech. You you kind of are in a good position, given where the economy is right now. So um, it's a valued set of insights for our guests. And certainly, um, we appreciate that you took the time today. It's been great being with you, Molly. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Hammerspace.